Let's pray together. God, we thank you for uh, the gathering of your people in this room today. God, we believe that the gathering of your people is unlike any other gathering that takes place in all of the world when the word is central and when Jesus is lifted up. And God, we ask that you would use the spirit of God to use the word of God in the hearts of the people of God in order to change us into the son of God. God, we need your help to do uh, that work today. And so we ask that you would come and that you would fill us with your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. For Labor Day last uh, Monday, I took the family and we spent the day with my in-laws in Ohio. And we always have a a great time with Lindsay's family. It's always a time to, to recharge. But on the way back, we got caught in that storm. And there, were, there was high winds, there was heavy rain, there was some, uh, even some hail. And for me personally, I do not like driving in a storm in the dark, especially with my family in the car. And so I'm gripping the steering wheel, like white-knuckling that guy. And my wipers are on full blast, my eyes are wide open, and I'm praying, right? I'm praying for safety, I'm praying for the storm to pass quickly, and I'm praying, just asking God to, to help me be alert, now, thankfully, we were able to uh, make it home safely, but it got me thinking about what motivates us to pray. What, what are the things in our lives that cause us to pray fervently? There are all kinds of reasons uh, that, that generate and, and kind of uh, uh, serve as a catalyst for us to pray steadfastly. For example, it might be a storm in your life, maybe not physically, but metaphorically, Maybe you go through a trial or a time of suffering and your need for the Lord is, is really revealed to you and so you pray. Maybe you're wrestling with a, a big decision. Maybe you have a hard decision in your life and you're looking for wisdom, you're looking for direction, you're looking for clarity, and so you pray. Maybe you're battling temptation. Maybe you're going through a particular war with, with sin and so you're asking God to give you strength, to give you power, and even to, to ask God to forgive you if you fall into that sin. All kinds of motivations in life that generate a need for us to pray. The, the challenge is, is that most of the motivations that we find in life typically fade. They usually do not last. For example, trials don't always last forever. Uh, hard decisions usually come and go. Our, our uh, relationship with sin and temptations usually kind of go in seasons. And so it's easy to, to come to a passage like this one this morning, and we read, continue steadfastly in prayer, and it's so easy for us to already feel defeated today. It's so easy for us to to read this and to think, oh, I need to pray more, and to already feel guilt starting to creep into our hearts if we take this passage and we isolate it from the rest of Colossians. Right? And that, that's something that I want to point out this morning is this connection about what we've already seen throughout this letter, that Paul has actually been providing for us the very best motivation to pray fervently because it is one that does not fade. This motivation that Paul has been providing for us is seeing and experiencing the preeminence of Jesus. That is the best motivation to pray steadfastly because it does not fade and it will last forever. Paul has been providing for us description after description about the greatness of Jesus, the, the incomparable worth of Jesus, so that your mind not only says, oh, that's true, 
but so that your heart looks at that and says, there's no way that could be true. That's too good to be true. How can Jesus be that great? And it causes us to want to pray. See, the reality is, is that this passage this morning, it will absolutely crush you if you don't understand the first three chapters of Colossians. See, what we've been seeing throughout this book is Paul, who is connecting the dots for us about the preeminence of Jesus to every area of our lives. The supremacy of Jesus is not just a theological truth to affirm, but it literally impacts every area. And we saw in chapter 3, it impacts our marriages, impacts our parenting, impacts our work and our words, and, and even the local church. Well, Paul's going to continue on connecting the dots for us this morning, and he's going to help answer the question, how do you know when the preeminence of Jesus has moved from just something that you affirm intellectually to it actually capturing your heart and your desires? Okay, two signs that we see in this passage. Number one, one of the clear signs that your life has been filled with the preeminence of Jesus is when you have a committed communication with God. Paul says to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now, this, of course, is not at the expense of committed Bible reading. This is not a, an either-or. As Charles Spurgeon famously said when he was asked, what is more important, prayer or Bible reading? He said, well, what is more important, breathing in or breathing out? Right? So we don't have to pick one in the Christian life, but Paul is focusing our attention on prayer. Now, I appreciate what Paul has to say here because he doesn't just tell us to pray steadfastly, but he actually explains how we can do that in this passage. In fact, there are four descriptions of a healthy prayer life that I just want to point out here in these first couple of verses. The first one is a healthy prayer life is one that is steadfast. Okay, this should remind us of what Paul has said elsewhere, like 1 Thessalonians 5.17, when Paul commands us to pray without ceasing or to pray continually. Now, of course, Paul is not calling us to pray literally 24-7. He's not even calling us to go throughout our day in kind of a spiritual daze, trying to live life and trying to pray at the same time. No, what Paul is calling us to is to have a prayer life that is consistent. It's, it's being devoted to prayer, being dedicated to prayer. That we are to be like the persistent widow in Luke chapter 18, the, the parable that Jesus used to try to land that point of coming to God the Father time and time again. This means that our prayer lives are to be marked by perseverance. Right? It's usually not a word that we use to describe what kind of prayer life that you have. Usually our prayer lives lack perseverance. If you're like me, I know for me, I, I'm such an immediate results kind of guy. I want things now, and so when I pray for something and, and the Lord doesn't work, then, then I usually move on to something else. That's something that I have to work on in my own life. I usually fall into pragmatism instead of just coming to the Lord time and time again and having perseverance mark my prayer life. So I think what Paul is calling us to this morning is to move from just being these spiritual microwaves to being a spiritual crockpot. Or, or a spiritual uh, smoker grill, if you will, as it relates to our prayer life, to be marked by perseverance. And look, if you've been a Christian for a little bit of a time, or if you've been churched, 
You know that you're going to go through seasons where you have a renewed passion to pray, right? It's just part of, of what it means to walk with the Lord. But what happens so often is that passion tends to not last, that something else becomes seemingly more important than prayer, like sleep or life's demands. But here's the thing this morning I want you to understand. God knows that, right? Even the Apostle Paul, he knows that. He knows that there are thousands of options in your life and in my life that want to take our time and our energy. Paul knows that there are so many things that, that serve as a threat to choke out having a prayer life that is steadfast. And that is why Paul, throughout Colossians, has been painting this picture of the greatness of Jesus. See, you and I do not pray with a steadfastness because of what we feel. We do not pray with a steadfastness being motivated by guilt. We do not pray with a steadfastness because your pastor tells you to or, or because you want to appear to be more spiritual or more religious. You and I pray with a steadfastness when our hearts have been captured by the greatness and the beauty of Jesus. And you can't help but want to talk to Jesus regularly. See, the reality is, is that these verses will crush you. Or maybe worse, your heart will be filled with guilt if you walk out of this room thinking, yeah, I'm a horrible Christian, I need to pray more, rather than coming back to what we have seen all throughout this letter about who Jesus actually is. See, steadfast prayer begins with being consumed with the irresistible person with Jesus. All right, that's the first description of a healthy prayer life. Number two, though, secondly, it's having a prayer life that is watchful, or in some translations have to, to be alert. Now, this word actually means a lot more than what you might think. This word means more than just having a, a mental alertness or being awake or, or being alive. In fact, one commentary I thought was, was really helpful and insightful in explaining this word said that the Colossians' prayers were to be in tune with the times. This meant that they were to know the circumstances of life, particularly those which affected the spread of the gospel. That informed prayer is likely to be more purposeful, personal, and powerful. See, watchfulness means that you are looking around at what is happening in the world and in your country and in your community, in your neighborhood, in the needs of the people around you, in your own soul, and turning those into prayers. That being watchful means that you're not allowing this self-focused merry-go-round to drown out the needs of the people around you. Being watchful means that you've woken up to why you're in this world, why God has placed you exactly where he's placed you, doing exactly what you're doing, and how that connects to the kingdom of God. And that informs how you pray. Paul says this very similarly in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. He says, and this is the passage about kind of spiritual warfare, he says, "...praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication." To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. See, even Jesus combined this idea of being watchful and praying. 
Remember the Garden of Gethsemane when he's exhorting his disciples the night before he was crucified to be watchful and to pray. We need both. And the reality is, is that some of us are really strong at one or the other, aren't we? Some of us are really strong at being watchful, but not praying. Or others of us are really strong at praying, but not being watchful. In our household, we uh, recently installed the, uh, the ring doorbell in our home and put some cameras outside. Not, not because we're particularly afraid of anything, but because one of my daughters is a runner. One of my daughters tends to have this, uh, this ability to unlock the front door, and she just takes off, right? Like one time, we were, a couple weeks ago, we were eating in the kitchen and just kind of talking, me and Lindsay, and we look around, we're like, where is Lila? Have you seen Lila? And we're kind of calling her name, and I look at the front door, and it's wide open. And I'm like, oh, no, she, she took off again. So I go out there, and she is several houses down the sidewalk. And so I'd love to tell you this morning that I ran and chased after, but she was so far down, I had to get my keys and drive to where she was. And I picked her up and I said, Lila, what are you doing? And she says, Daddy, I just wanted to get some sun out. And that's her phrase of saying, I wanted to get some sun and and kind of hang out. She's just going on a stroll. And so we got got the, uh, the ring doorbell and these cameras because every time you go outside the front door or the back door, I get alerted on my watch and my phone. And it really serves as two purposes. Number one, it keeps intruders out of our home. And secondly, it keeps my daughter inside my home, right? And, and I was thinking about that and thinking about this idea of, of the spiritual discipline of watchfulness is very similar to a home security system. See, through being on guard, being sober-minded, being alert, you are able to keep out the intruders of sin from the home of your heart, and you are able to keep the sufficiency and the centrality of King Jesus in your heart. It it tunes you in to things going on in your life that might want to try to hijack that throne in your heart and push Jesus off to the side. See, this helps us not, not sleepwalk through life. Look, I just wonder, I wonder if if this might be one of the biggest reasons why many of us are not steadfast in our prayer lives. I wonder if you have this spiritual home security system in your own life that creates urgency for why you need to pray consistently. See, if if you're unaware of the needs going on in your life, why pray? If your life is not guarded and grounded in prayer, it's usually because you're lacking a watchfulness in what's going on around you. Look, I want to be helpful this morning, so let me press into this a little bit more and just provide five questions to just kind of help develop the spiritual discipline of watchfulness, right? You can almost view each of these questions as a different uh, uh, security camera in your life that should inform how you pray. Number one is that what's the, the spiritual temperature Uh, going on in my relationship with God right now? You should be able to answer that question. Am I pursuing God or am I in a a place of complacency? And how should that inform how you pray? Secondly, uh, where am I most tempted to give into sin? What, What lies am I starting to believe from the enemy, from temptation, and how can I pray against that? Thirdly, uh, what is the spiritual shape of those around me? 
right? How are the people in my life, how are they doing spiritually? My friends, my, my small group members, my spouse, or uh, my kids, or my parents. Fourth, what areas does my church most need prayer? I can help you with that. Your lead pastor needs prayer every single day, so you can just jot that down. But thinking about your church, thinking about what we're going through as a church, how can you pray for us? And then fifthly, what are the spiritual root issues in my community, in my neighborhood, and my country? It's just simple questions to help you be more watchful that can inform your prayer life. See, I know, I know the challenge in my own life, and this is probably true for you, it's taking the time and the energy to not just see things on the surface, but to see the spiritual issues underneath the surface. So the challenge is, is not just taking the time to know what your spouse needs from the grocery store, but it's taking the time and energy to know what your spouse needs from Jesus. It's taking the time not just to know what your kid's homework assignment is, but it's taking the time to know what truths from God's word your kid needs to embrace. See, it's taking the time not just to allow your heart to be frustrated by our country's morality, but it's taking the time to identify what, what are the idols going on in our country and our community that you can pray into. See, being watchful will increase your commitment to prayer. And then thirdly here, Paul continues, another descriptor of a healthy prayer life is uh, prayers of thanksgiving or being grateful. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now, I personally found this really helpful because we are not to be steadfast. We are not to be watchful in our prayer lives out of fear, but it's to be described by a thanksgiving or a gratefulness because Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is king, and Jesus has all power, all authority, and he's actually at work in our world. And prayers of thanksgiving is identifying where God is at work and giving him praise for being at work. Like, I don't want you to, to underestimate the power of having prayers of thanksgiving. See, when you, are, when you are giving these prayers of thanksgiving to the Lord, you are training the eyes of your heart to identify the faithfulness of God. See, when you can recognize where God has been faithful in the past, you are training your heart to trust that God will be faithful in the present and the future. And this is something that's so important as far as guarding the content of your prayers. This will help you not pray prayers of entitlement or selfishness or having prayers that are just self-focused. And this is something that I do in my own life when I'm noticing that I'm asking for things that, that's all about Chris Beals. I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm lacking Thanksgiving right now. I need to make sure that I'm grateful, that, that I'm, I'm ascribing worth to the Lord and what he is already doing. And then fourthly, finally, another description of a healthy prayer life is when your prayers are Jesus-exalting. Right, in verses 3 through 4, I think Paul says something astounding here. Paul, in verse 3, is asking the Colossians to pray to God that God would open up a door for him in order to declare the mystery of Christ. And do you remember where Paul was at this time? Paul's in prison, right? This is one of the prison epistles. He's praying that Jesus would be exalted in and through his life. In verse 4, he's saying, hey, help me to, to, to make sure that I'm doing this well, that I'm speaking clearly. 
What a challenge for us this morning that, that Paul, nowhere in the prison epistles will you find him asking the people that he's writing to that God would release him from prison or that God would, would change his circumstances or that God would change his situation. No, time and time again, Paul is asking that Jesus would be magnified in and through his life. Look, what a challenge for us. I know for me, I know my own prayer lives, I, I tend to tip this way. I'm, like, I'm asking God, hey, God, change this circumstance. God, change that situation. Take away this hard thing from my life. Rather than thinking, God, please help Jesus be exalted in and through this trial, in and through this circumstance. Look, this is kind of a, a shift in focus in how we need to pray. And this is evidence of when your heart has been captured by the preeminence of Jesus, you will pray, pray prayers marked by steadfastness, watchfulness, gratefulness, and prayers that exalt the name of Jesus. So that's one sign. All right, the second sign, though, in verses 5 and 6, is when you are walking wisely toward outsiders. Now, don't skip over that word outsider too quickly. I think this is a, a great reminder that in our orbit of life, there should be people who do not know Jesus. There should be neighbors and uh, co-workers and family members and friends and, and baristas who don't know Jesus so that we can actually live out verses 5 and 6 consistently. In, in other words, it's it's really hard to live out verses 5 and 6 if you're not rubbing shoulders with unbelievers. Look, I think that we oftentimes wrestle with how do we best live in grace and truth with people who don't know Jesus, right? That's a, that's a, a frequent question that we ask ourselves. How do you live with grace and truth when you have neighbors who are lesbian? How do you live with grace and truth when your coworkers give themselves over to drunkenness after work at the bar uh, every week? How do you live with grace and truth when you have family members who want nothing to do with Jesus or Christianity? Well, these verses tell us how. The first thing that Paul identifies for us is this idea of wisdom, that we need wisdom in order to interact with people who are indifferent to uncomfortable with or hostile to our faith. Now, this word wisdom should not be a surprise for us. This isn't the first time that we've seen this word in Colossians. Paul has used this word five times already. Chapter 1, verse 9. Chapter 1, verse 28. Chapter 2, verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 23. And chapter 3, verse 16. And it's so interesting the way that Paul uses this word wisdom. In each of these cases, Paul uses wisdom as the mechanism for not just understanding Jesus, but by grasping Jesus. Not just seeing Jesus, but really seeing Jesus. See, to be changed by Jesus demands more than just facts, more than just understanding, but it, it involves this spiritual wisdom in order to be captivated by him. And so to walk wisely is to both live in such a way that leads to opportunities of explaining the greatness of Jesus, and it's having the ability and the skill and the tools in order to explain the beauty and the power of Jesus to those around us. And just like prayer, 
Paul helps us with this, right? Because that feels a little bit abstract to walk wisely toward outsiders. And I think the next couple verses here, he explains three ways of how to do this. That number one in verse 5b, we are to live strategically. I love this phrase that Paul uses. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. This is a fascinating phrase in the original language because it literally means buying up the time or making the most of the opportunity, right? We are to understand that because our time is short and it does feel like the Lord may not tarry that much longer, that we are to strategically and intentionally orient our lives that maximizes gospel opportunities, right? And I want you to hear this this morning. I'm not, I'm not calling us to add something else onto our lives, I'm not calling to add a program or add an event or, or add another initiative, but I think what this passage is calling us to is to shift our focus to the existing opportunities that are all around us and to be strategic with them, to think about our neighbors and our coworkers and our family and friends and think about how can I talk about Jesus with them in these existing opportunities? Last weekend, I uh, had the privilege of officiating a, a wedding for one of our members in our church, and it was a, a beautiful evening, beautiful couple, and, and in the, the ceremony, I just laid out the gospel very clearly, called people to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus. And after the ceremony, I had a, a few people come up to me and, and thank me for doing that, and a few of them said, we've not been to a wedding ceremony where the gospel is actually proclaimed and you actually call people to salvation. And I said, well, this is just something my mentor told me to do because you're going to have people who may never step foot into the church, but they'll go to a wedding or they'll go to a funeral, and you need to be strategic to make the gospel clear. And for me, as a pastor, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm already going to officiate this wedding. Why not be strategic with it and just share the gospel with 200 people that were there? See, this is a principle we need to apply in the different areas of our lives, not adding things to our lives, but just being more strategic with them. And I love what, what James has to say. James actually describes our lives like a mist, that we're here today and we're gone tomorrow. Do you think about that often? Do you think about how short our time is on the earth in light of, of eternity? I mean, that is a sobering reality that should generate a sense of urgency to live strategically in order to get the gospel out. And look, here's the reality. Here's, here's one of the best reasons to live strategically is that we have a message of hope to give to the world, that our message is actually good news for people that we actually believe that, that this message about Jesus can change their lives forever. This is a message about God who has created each and every one of us. And yet because we have rebelled against him, because we all have sinned, we all have these consequences. And yet because God is rich in mercy and love, because he is so gracious, he doesn't leave us in the destruction of our sin, but he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to live the life that we couldn't, to live this perfect life. And then, and then the perfect son of God 
the one who put every star in the galaxy, the one who tells the sun when to set and when to rise, the one who commands the demons and they obey, this son of God got up on a cross 2,000 years ago and he died in the place of sinners. The cross was this torture tool in the first century that the Romans used for criminals. And Jesus Christ, the perfect sinless creator of the universe died in your place, in my place, to take away our sins. And look, Jesus absorbed all of the wrath of God. He took away our penalty. Three days later, he rose to new life, showing his victory over Satan, over sin, and over death. And all who believe in Jesus and turn from their sins can be saved. Well, that's our message. (laughs) That can preach, right? Not just here, but in your life. That's a good message that needs to be shared with the people around us. And look, I, I know COVID has impacted the way that we do personal evangelism. I felt that in my own life over the last several months, but I just want to lovingly challenge you this morning. It's time to adjust. It's time to adjust as far as how we think creatively, how we think strategically, how we think intentionally about getting the gospel out to those who need it. So to walk wisely is to live strategically. Secondly, though, to walk wisely means that our speech needs to be gracious. Verse 6, Paul says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Paul is calling us to use our words in a way that convey God's grace in our conversations. I love Ephesians 4.29. puts a little bit more color to it here. Paul says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Look, does that describe your speech this morning? But the reality is, is that when we use our words in a way that builds up, not tears down, when we use words that are encouraging, that are winsome, that are life-giving, it is attractive to the gospel. And then I love the next thing that Paul says. He says, let our speech be seasoned with salt. This is a fascinating phrase here. But foods in Paul's day were seasoned with salt to do two things. It was meant to preserve the food and it was meant to enhance the taste of the food, right? So in the same way uh, that salt enhances the taste of our food, our speech should be used to make Jesus look appetizing, right? And I love that, that idea as far as how we think about evangelism here, that each of us have a responsibility to talk about Jesus in such a way that it adds an appetizing flavor to him, to think about ways that we can talk about Jesus that makes other people's mouths water spiritually because they want Jesus so badly. It's figuring out, how do we do that? How do we talk about Jesus in that way? Well, I think one way that we do that is by every day coming back to the scriptures and reminding ourselves why the gospel tastes so good. Right? And look, this is, I think this is one of the biggest traps why many of us are not sharing Jesus more regularly is that we've fallen into the trap 
of neglecting our own personal enjoyment of Jesus. So when there's an opportunity that comes our way to talk about the beauty of Jesus, because we have not been feasting on that ourselves, because our taste buds have become dull, we might miss an opportunity before us. See, it's hard to to salt your speech with the deliciousness of Jesus when you've been enjoying the taste of yourself. So this challenge here of, of understanding how to, how to walk wisely, how, how to be strategic, how to use our speech, it, it really begins with, with feasting upon Jesus every single day. So that spills out of your life in your conversations. Look this morning, just by way of application, I was thinking about these verses and thinking about how the election is just right around the corner. And I think for us as the people of God, we need to think very carefully about how to apply this verse and how we talk about politics and how we talk about political parties, how we talk about political nominees, that for us, uh, we need to be uh, educated, we need to be engaged, we can have opinions politically, even leanings politically, but to remind ourselves that our citizenship is first and foremost in heaven And that our king is King Jesus who deserves our full allegiance. Again, that means that we need to be engaged in in our country and the politics in our country. But to understand that our American rights is not the same as our Christian identity. That they're, they're, they're different. And that understanding who we are in Jesus and what the word of God says should impact the way that we talk about politics especially during this time, to make sure that our speech is gracious, to make sure that it's seasoned with salt. Look, wouldn't it be amazing if the watching world around us, unbelievers around us, overhear a conversation that you might have about politics in the coffee shop, or they might be viewing on social media, and because it's so gracious, because it's so seasoned with salt, that they become curious about the gospel, They become curious about why, that, wow, this didn't get too personal or too heated or or this didn't cross over a line. Tell me why. Why is your speech so seasoned with salt? Wouldn't that be amazing if that led to opportunities to talk about Jesus? And then finally, the last thing I'll point out, I'll close with this this morning. The third way to walk wisely is to take personal responsibility. Paul says at the end of this verse, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Look, wisdom is displayed when we exercise discernment by knowing who needs which answer, in which tone of voice, which posture to have, and at what moment. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, speaks of the necessity of personal responsibility. He says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Look, the point is this, is that each person is different, each situation is unique, but the gospel is the same. And there are countless ways to serve the meal of Christ, and we need to exercise wisdom and discernment about how to best season and flavor the gospel of Jesus. My, uh, my daughters have been playing all summer long with the neighborhood kids, and it's been awesome. And Ellie, who's my oldest, she's six years old, and she is someone that I would describe as, as pretty spiritually sensitive. 
And over the last couple of weeks, as, as we do bedtime, we read the Bible and we pray together, uh, she from time to time will drop a theological bomb before me to kind of stall bedtime. I've shared that with you before. But the one that she's been asking the last couple of weeks is, how can God send people to hell? Right? She just wants to know, like, can, can you go to hell and yet still go to church? Like, how does that work? And so I'm explaining what it means to trust in Jesus, what it means that Jesus paid for our sin on the cross and gives us his righteousness. It's almost like this coat that you wear and that you're hidden and covered by Christ. And so a couple weeks ago, I was doing bedtime with her, and she says, Daddy, I was talking to one of the neighborhood kids yesterday, and I told her that she's going to hell unless she believes in Jesus. And I said, wow, honey, that's awesome. Tell me more about that. Is that all that you said? <laughs> I get a little nervous there. And she said, well, I invited her to church and said she can view church online if she wants to. And, and I just said, wow, Ellie, great job just being bold and being clear. We'll work on the graciousness piece a little bit later on. But I just remember being, my heart was so instructed and, and convicted by my six-year-old. I walked away thinking, I want to be more like Ellie. I want to be bold and, and courageous and not be captivated by the fear of man or what other people are going to think. And, and I want to believe that, yes, Jesus is too good to keep to myself. And look, I know that you would agree with that in your own heart and life. And that's something that we want to pray more and more for. And so as we close, let me just give you three closing thoughts related to application today. I'll be brief with each of these. But number one, if we want to be consistent in our sharing of the gospel, we need to carve out margin to pray watchfully. Look, you might be in the Word regularly, praise God for that, but are you praying regularly? Encourage you to even take those questions that I shared earlier and to turn them into prayers. And then secondly, encourage you to do a personal inventory on the existing opportunities with outsiders that God has sovereignly and providentially placed in your life. To think about how you can shift your focus to be more intentional to influence others for Christ. And then thirdly, I want you to evaluate the saltiness of your words. This takes humility. This takes courage. But I challenge you to ask the person next to you, ask the person that you rode in the car with, maybe call up a friend later on today and ask them to evaluate the way that you use your words. When you talk about Jesus, is he, is he, um, are you talking about him in a way that would cause others to crave him in your life? Church, we want to be a people who are so captivated by Christ that it leads us to talking to God more and talking to other people about God all the more. Let's pray together. God, we praise you. We thank you for the challenge of this passage. <clears throat> and yet, God, we thank you for Jesus. God, we thank you that without Jesus, we can't live this passage out. So God, I pray for each and every one of our hearts, God, that we would slow down, that we would inspect who it is, what it is that is on the throne of our heart, that's generating what we talk about and how much time we spend with you. God, I pray that you would grow us as a church, that we would be gracious in our speech, and Lord, that when we talk about Jesus, that people's mouths would water spiritually. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.